expose. <laughs> I like the bell a lot. I like that. Or the gong. Can we have a gong? So we got Thanksgiving this week. This week. Turkey and cranberry and stuffing and not that I need it. That doesn't stop me though. I've been reading over and over and over again that, you know, my, my current, you know, what I'm doing right now is designed perfectly to keep me exactly where I am. And it's true. <laughs> Apparently I would have to change something to, to change something. I don't, hmm. It's crazy how that works. We've got communion next week, next Sunday, the 28th. And then the next food bank is December 10th and 11th. No Bible studies this week because Thanksgiving this week. So we get a week off of that. And then we'll be right back to it. Got a few things that we should, we should pray for, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you for voices and hugs and coffee and opportunities to worship and clean carpets and Lord we are just uh, we've come before you this morning and we have some things that we would lift up to you first of all we would lift up our food bank to you we've got food bank in, in three weeks or so and so we lift that up to you Father you have been so faithful we just ask that that continues we lift up the, the jail ministry to you it's got to be rough. And their judgment and their, their punishment is probably just, Father, but that doesn't mean that we don't care for their souls, that we don't care for their hurting. And we're so thankful for these wonderful men who go into these places and, and serve you. Please sustain and provide that hearts would be changed, that you would be glorified. We lift up KJOL to you, our local Christian radio. We lift them up to you that it is so nice to get in your car and turn on worship music, to get to listen to, to good preaching, to have your word glorified in our media in a faithful way. Thank you. Our hearts break for the people of Afghanistan. So many people that, I said over a million people that are in starvation right now. I don't have food. Sure wish you'd send them our way. We would feed them. Just asking that you show up big there, Father, that uh, that suffering would be eased, that people would turn to you, Father. Think about Thailand and Myanmar and, and Ethiopia even that are still going through these horrible military crackdowns on their people pray for freedom. We pray for provision. We pray that hearts would be turned to you, that right and wrong, that justice would just sing out through those lands. Same thing we think about our, our brothers and sisters at the White Mountain Apache tribe, that they would have provision that they would have a good Thanksgiving, whatever that means, that they would get together with their families and get to sit around tables and, and laugh and smile and joke and eat too much. And that in the end, you would be glorified. We lift up our service this morning to you, that we would open our hearts, that we would open our minds, that we would have your word open in front of us, that as we go out into the week, that we would be renewed, refreshed, recommitted, that we would be relentless in our pursuit of you and in doing the things that you ask us to do. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are in John chapter 9 verses 1 through 34. If you want to open your Bibles, we've got to jump right in. We have quite a bit of, of material today, and we probably won't get through all of it. 
So I apologize, but um, we will jump right in. It's a longer passage today, but I wanted to get the whole thing because it, it tells the whole story. And we probably, like I say, won't get to the, to the end, to the response, um, just for, for time's sake. But um, if so, we'll, we'll table it for next week. We do have um, uh, next week as well, Richard has a video for us from his mission time down with the White Mountain Apache. So we'll have that. And uh, so that'll be a, a great thing for us to, to have next Sunday as well for our Communion Sunday. So it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, where it means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, no, he only looks like him. But he himself said, No, I'm him, I'm the man. They asked him, how then, how were your eyes opened? They asked him, he replied, the the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. And now on the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then he turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the man replied, He must be a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know that he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So we have a lot of material to cover today. So we're going to jump right in. So our our setting, if we flip back one chapter, is when Jesus was, again, teaching right in the synagogue. He was in the the court of the women, standing right underneath the the big menorah, the big four-bold menorah that they would light for the the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, underneath there is where he said, I am the light of the world. Chapter 8 concludes with a very strong statement. Jesus says they have this big back and forth about Moses and who is, um, you know, who is a kid uh, who follows Moses and all of this stuff. And at the very end of that, he says, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds right there. 
And again, it's a, it's a Saturday, it's a Sabbath day. It's right at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus has stood underneath those massive torches and he has proclaimed he is the light of the world. And then he says, I am. He equates himself with God. And again, he emphasizes the point. He says, amen, amen. Truly, truly, I tell you. I existed before Abraham. And then he says what God said to Moses. He says, I am. If you go to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, this is that place. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, I am. So the bottom line of that, the emphasis of that, is that why do we believe that Jesus is equal to God? Why do we believe that? It's because he says it right there. If you wanted to, to make the argument when people ask, well, you know, why do you believe in the Trinity? Nowhere in there does anyone, any of the disciples, mention the Trinity. They never do, and that's very true. That's, uh, the Trinity is what we use as a way to describe what we see in the Bible. We've come up with that as a way for us to communicate something that we see. We say, well, we see these three separate people who are also one. Right here, Jesus is saying, I am. He is saying, I am equal to God. But we also see that he's separate. He says, Father and Son. Jesus uses both. So we're trying to describe something that we see. When we say, when we talk about the Trinity, we're trying to describe something that we see. And it's a mystery. We don't fully understand it because God, God of Israel is one. But yes, he's also three people, and they're separate. He says, they have the same mind, they seem to do the same actions, but in one way, they're one, and in one way, they are three persons. If we wanted to go to, uh, to Matthew chapter 28, it's in the Great Commission, but right there, it's where we get what I say when we baptize. Uh, 28, 19 says, Therefore, and go make disciples of all nations, nations, baptizing them in what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There it is. That's why we have a Trinity doctrine is because Jesus says so right there. So if you want to have a study, if you're going, man, I really don't understand this or I want to dig into this further, I want to know more about this, from John chapter 5 through John chapter 8, they're a great place where Jesus repeatedly talks about his relationship with God, how they are one, and how they are also separate. So right there, Jesus equates himself to God. And for this, the crowd picks up stones to kill him. He has called them sons of the devil, and in their mind, he has committed blasphemy, and they are going to take care of it. So they pick up these stones. Now remember, they can't do this legally. They're under Roman rule. The sword has been taken away from Judah. They have no ability to do capital punishment. The right thing to do would have been to have haul him what they do later when they haul him before Pilate. And then, you know, he goes over and he, you know, he gets crucified, all of that stuff. That is the right way, the legal way to do it. Them picking up these stones to stone him is actually a violation of the law. It's kind of a strange thing to think, but in one way, Jesus saves them by hiding himself from them. He prevents them from breaking the law. Isn't that crazy to think about? That, I don't know, I mean, you know, maybe some silver comes from the temple and maybe it smooths things out or maybe, you know, injustice is that common, but it's a crazy thought to think that in one way, Jesus hiding himself from them saves them from breaking the law. So Jesus leaves the temple grounds. How often do you guys, have you guys ever been hauled out to be stoned? Anyone? Anyone? Everyone ever have that happen? I, I haven't. Anyone just go right back to work? Anybody not want a day off? Anybody not want a moment to rest after they've had something traumatic like that? Maybe you've been in a car accident or maybe something bad has happened. Jesus does not take a break. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to go, you know, rest up for a minute. Doesn't go play golf. He's walking out of the temple grounds and he sees a blind man. And this is the first point of the day. This is practical Christianity. This is practical evangelism. 
Jesus is relentless in doing the things of God. He deserved a break. He deserved it. Didn't take it. No one said he sees this blind man on the side of the road and he says, no, we're not going to pass by. It's not time to rest. He comes across this man who is born blind. He sees him and immediately he has to act. Spurgeon said the stones were practically whizzing past his head. And he's like, wait, guys, we got to stop. This guy needs help. Can't walk past him. The point is to take that same attitude. See, Jesus is like this his entire life. If we go to the the point where um, when Jesus was 12, when he goes to the temple courts, what does he say to his parents? He says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? I had to be in my father's house. He takes this attitude relentlessly. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 7, verses 16 through 18, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. John 7, 20 through 29, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So when Jesus goes to the temple courts and teaches, what is he doing? The will of God. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 or feeds the 4,000 or heals a blind man, what is he doing? The will of God. Does God change? No, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So does God want us to teach truth about him the same way that Jesus did? I would say so. Does God want us to proclaim him the way that Jesus did? I would say so. Does God want us to feed and care for our brothers and sisters the way that he did? I would say so. Those are core things. They are practical and paramount the followers of Christ. We are willfully obedient, doing the desired will, the desired wish of the one who sent us. And notice that fear of death, fear of persecution, fear of, and this is the big one for us, fear of public opinion does not stop Jesus from obeying God. Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, doing what? Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. I can't do that last one, but I can do the first two. When he saw the crowds, he, what? he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus is relentless in proclaiming the truth and caring for the needs of others. Could we do any less? Can we do any less? Can we? And still call ourselves followers of Christ? John 21, 15 through 17 Jesus is talking to Peter right here, but the point is still here. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he says, yes, Lord. He says, you know that I love you. He says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, he says, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. The evidence of our love for Christ is in our willful obedience. All right, going on to part two. This is about the nature of man, the nature of disease, and the nature of sin. So we're going back to verse 9. He says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents that he was born blind. So last week, we were having a conversation about some points, right? It was a little pot-stirring moment where we talked about the source of evil or questions about what, what hell is like. Those are fun things to talk about. I love Revelation. It's great fun to go through end times ministry. It's great fun to think about those things, to talk about them, to theorize, to chew on them. So the disciples, they ask this question. They say, who sinned? All right, who sinned? Who sinned? What caused this? What's the cause? What's behind this? Who's to blame? Who's responsible? Right? Here's a great opportunity for Jesus to have this, this wonderful moment where he goes to maybe like where Paul does in Romans 3, or we could go to Romans 6 or Romans 8. We'd have this whole treatise on the nature of sin, the nature of man. Instead, what does Jesus say? He says, you're looking for the wrong thing, man. We got work to do. We got stuff to do. This guy didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. That's not the point. This is an opportunity right here. He says, Neither this man sinned, nor his parents sinned, but this happened, why? That the good works of God might be displayed. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to do some work. So the first part we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the nature of sin. Because it's brought up right here. So we're going to start off with sin, and then we're going to contrast that. Because Jesus says, if you're looking for sin, this ain't it. So we're going to start off there, and then we'll go to the this ain't it part. He says, I use several definitions for sin because I want you guys to have a set of breaks, things that stop you from going into the wrong place. So the first definition, I put this in your message map, it says, missing the mark. I am aiming to do the right thing, but I missed. Going the wrong direction, being off course. When we talk about repentance, that word repent literally means to get on the right course. It means to change direction to get on the right course. We were heading away from God instead of towards God. We repented of what we were doing. We got on the right path. Another definition is rebellion, willful disobedience. If we go to Genesis chapter 3, it's wanting to be equal with God taking God's rightful place in our lives. It's what caused Satan to fall, and it is what Satan tempted Eve with in the garden. If you go to Genesis 3, verse 4, it says, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. That's the temptation. That's the rebellion. We want to be like God, knowing good and evil. The last definition is sin is a matter of the heart. It is desiring, treasuring, loving, coveting, longing for something more than God. It's idolatry. And we cannot overstate the seriousness of sin. Through one sin, the sin of Adam, by the way, all of creation fell and death entered the world. One sin. Uzzah disobeyed God. He touched the ark and was struck down immediately. In 2 Samuel 6, 7. Numbers 15.32, a guy picked up sticks on the Sabbath. He went out and gathered some firewood. And God said, cast him out of the camp and stone him to death. Moses struck a rock one time. One time he did it for his own glory. He didn't glorify God. He struck a rock one time for himself. And he was denied going into the promised land. How serious is sin? It's that serious. We cannot make light of sin. We cannot do that because right here it says how serious God takes it. We're going to Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We have no excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have begun filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Sin is serious. John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. wish I had a joke. wish I had something funny to lighten that up. But it's serious. This is serious business. I'm aiming to do the right thing, but I missed. I was going the wrong direction. I was headed away from God instead of towards God. I was willfully rebellious. I knew what I should have done, and I did the exact opposite thing. Why? Because I want to be equal with God. I want to have his judgment. I want to have his power. I want to take his place in my life. That's why. Or I desired or I treasured or I loved something above God. That's sin. This is not a matter of sin. That's super important. I'm going to contrast this with the way that our world believes. It's going to be rough. Sorry, but especially in America, we have taken a very different approach to how we handle certain things. This is going to get ugly. See, Jesus says to these folks, this is not a matter of sin. He said, this man was born blind. Why? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, the disciples ask a question about the nature of sin because they want to know what caused this blindness, what caused this situation. They want to know who is to blame. And when we come across situations, especially situations where we are powerless, when our, one of our first inclinations is to want to establish responsibility. Who is responsible for this mess? Who can we hold to account Jesus answers the question, but not in a matter of cause and effect. Instead, he answers that there is a purpose. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Chris, you are amazing. Chris works with kids with disabilities. Cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, spina bifida, blindness, deafness, autism. You name it. Notice how he, this passage starts. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus saw the blind man. Jesus is the one who starts this dialogue. The disciples pipe up after Jesus sees the man. Part of being relentless in our pursuit of God, it has to be to see people, to see them, not to pass by on the other side. 
It's not always comfortable. It's not always going to be. Thankfully, there's lots of grace and mercy that are poured out on us. But then Jesus says something so comforting, so reassuring, so amazing. It should change our entire outlook on humanity. It doesn't matter the disability. It could be a bad limb or ADHD or allergies or anxiety or dyslexia or depression or the more serious disabilities. Each of those disabilities is not a curse. It's not a judgment. It's not a penalty. It's also not the provision of a cruel or a callous or a vengeful God. Instead, they are opportunities for what? For the works of God to be displaced or to be displayed. See, currently in the U.S., we have this mentality of eugenics. It's an ugly word, isn't it? But we do. It seeps into everything that we do. Roughly 90% of babies who are diagnosed with disabilities in the womb are aborted. Over 3,000 abortions a day in the U.S. And the idea is to improve humanity by not allowing people with disabilities to be born, along with unwanted or inconvenient children. It's not new. It was practiced in Europe starting in the late 1800s, and it was mostly race-based. That's what we think of usually when we think of eugenics. And it's currently practiced in China with their one-child policy. Girl children have been undesirable and have been aborted in the millions because families valued boys more than girls. The vast majority of abortions in the U.S. are performed on poor and minority women. Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of Planned Parenthood, she would be very proud of her life's work. I got a couple of quotes. This is from an article. It's from Time Magazine. It says, What Margaret Sanger really said about eugenics and race. Sanger's stated mission was to empower women to make their own reproductive choices. She did focus her efforts on minority communities because that was where, due to poverty and limited access to health care, get this mentality that poverty and limited access to health care, they were especially vulnerable to the effects of unplanned pregnancy. What are the effects? I guess it's not an opportunity for the good works of God to be displayed. Enforced motherhood, she wrote in 1914, is the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty. That is not to say that Sanger didn't also make some deeply disturbing statements in support of eugenics, the now discredited movement to improve the overall health and fitness of humankind through selective breeding. She did, and very publicly in a 1921 article, she wrote that the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. That is the materialist, the worldly view. We want to play God. We think we can improve humanity. We think that we can make things better, that by making these choices, that we can somehow shape the way that our country goes, the way that our nation goes. We want to play God. If we just eliminate just a few of these things, things will get better. Versus Jesus' view. He says it's not a curse. This isn't something horrible. It's not something bad. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for the good works of God to be displayed. Does it make a This is a hard reality that we're going to talk about, a hard reality of the parent-child relationship. And it goes both ways. This goes both ways. Anybody who is a parent or who has been born understands this. Everybody been born in here? Okay. It's a true relationship about our relationship to God. It's true about our relationship with our parents. It's true about our relationship with our kids. Both of us, we get unearned obligations. And we get undeserved privilege. Children are an obligation, and parents are an obligation. And we did not get to pick them for good and for bad. Children are also a privilege, and parents are also a privilege. 
We don't deserve them for good and for bad. It is a relationship of unearned obligation and undeserved privilege. We could be like the disciples, wanting to know the cause. You notice we don't get too upset when it works in our favor. I don't see Paris Hilton wanting to give away her trust fund. I didn't, I didn't see that happen maybe next week. I don't see Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. They didn't seem to get too mad at their parents over their talent and opportunity to play football. They didn't, they didn't mind that so much. Quite frankly, just being born in the United States, one of the most wealthy, most educated, most comfortable nations. None of us got to choose. Why are some born here and some born in Iraq or Russia or China or Afghanistan? See, it's when there is work, when there is struggle, that is why, when we want to know who is to blame. Instead, instead, Jesus flips the script. He says, you got this all wrong. Why are you looking for blame? Get to work. Take a workmanlike attitude to this. These are the good works God has prepared in advance for me to do. It's an unearned obligation. It's an undeserved privilege to partner with God in the good works he has prepared for us. And Jesus never hesitates to do the work of the Father. John 9, 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says this over and over and over again. John 5, 16 through 17. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. 5, 19 through 21. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John seven sixteen through 18, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. 728, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. John 8, 27 through 34. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. We must take a workmanlike attitude to our faith. When we are tempted to shake our fist at the sky and ask God, why? We know the answer. This is an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed. Whatever it is, whatever the challenge is. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 say, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, each and every single one of us. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are made alive in Christ, so get off your backside and get to work. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 through 21 say, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. 
Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are, how would you like to be these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. Forever, for eternity, their names are in here as people who departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. See with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So our goal for today is to have eyes and to have a mindset like Christ, where we are always looking for opportunities for good works, where God can be glorified, where the why, where the who is to blame can be replaced with how can God be magnified? How can God be glorified in this circumstance? Is there a truth to be proclaimed? Is there a need to be a met, whether it's healing or feeding or clothing or loving or sitting or comforting or praying? We get a little bit of a lighthearted break because we get to go through the reaction. So, let me ask you a question. If you guys, you guys know anybody that maybe was blind? Anybody? Remember Bruce that used to come? If you walk through the door today, seeing, what's going to be your first reaction? Because their reaction is, did the doctor work on a Sunday? Are you kidding me? That doctor went to work on a Sunday? How dare he? How dare he cure your blindness on a Sunday? That's not the answer. Just FYI, if somebody walks in through the door who is blind, who can now suddenly see, we probably want to have a different reaction than that. But that's exactly what they say. See, this is a miracle. Even if it's a, a procedure at a hospital, if God partners with a human and the good work is cancer cured or pneumonia cured or bones healed or blindness or paralysis, whatever the infirmity when a body is healed, we know this answer. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed. Just please don't go around spitting on mud and putting it on people's eyes. Okay? Just if you would refrain from doing that, that'd be okay. So Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the guy's eyes. He goes to the pool of Siloam, means sent. It's a big pool, by the way. It's like the four Olympic swimming pool size, that pool they'd recently excavated a few years ago. They found it and excavated it. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begged, asking, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. And others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. So it's important by going and, and having the ritual cleansing that he can re-enter society. He can start his life probably for the first time. He was born blind. This is the first time this man is ever seeing. And immediately he's being grilled. Could you imagine that? You get out of the hospital, you're finally able to see and the first thing that happens is, uh, we're taking you to court. <laughs> you got to go talk to the authorities. This isn't right. There's no celebration. There's no party. Even his own parents don't throw a party for him. Isn't that a crazy reaction? What would you do if, if your kids were suddenly cured? What would you do? I think we would have a big party. I guarantee I would call all y'all. We'd have a big stinking party. If Ryder's allergy was suddenly cured, if I never had to worry about him eating milk and eggs ever again, if he had some miracle treatment that somehow took that away, I'm buying y'all dinner. We're going to have nachos. <laughs> There's no celebration. Instead, they haul him before the authorities. Then they ask him questions. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
Okay, if I ever act that way, smack me, okay? Here's a man who was blind who can now see, and they're accusing the doctor, the guy who cured him, of not being from God because he did it on a Saturday. How can a sinner perform such signs? Let's turn again to the blind man and said, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still, they did not believe that he'd been blind. They received his sight until they sent for his parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Listen how scared they are of the authorities. How scared they are of being put out of the, the synagogue. How scared they are of being ostracized from society. How scared they are of public opinion. Rightfully so. Right? One of the things God asks us to do is to be bold, right? To not be afraid of public opinion. But this, these are real consequences. These guys might have lost their livelihood. They're hanging on by a thread anyway. Probably having to care for their adult son their entire lives. Him not being productive in an agrarian society. This is rough. And they know they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They're going to lose their people. They're going to lose their family. They're going to lose everything if they proclaim Jesus here. And instead, what do they do? They say, talk to him. He's an adult. He's of age. Don't question us. Can't necessarily blame them. He is of age. Ask him. So they bring the guy a second time. They say, give glory to God by telling the truth. He says, we know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. This is our life with Christ right here. We may not know. We may not know everything about Christ. But the one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. This is a great line. He says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) I can tell you the story again, I guess, if you need to hear it, if you need to find the guy. No problem. And then they got really mad. They started hurling insults at him. I don't know, maybe the guy's a little bit of a smart aleck like me. So he and I are kindred spirits, I guess. But they say, you are this fellow's disciples. He met the guy one time. And he didn't even know who he was. Couldn't even pick him out of a crowd. He never saw Jesus until we get to the end, until next week's message. Never saw him. Literally, never saw him. Put the mud on his eyes, went and washed, immediately hauled before the authorities. Verse 38, he'll, he'll get to meet him, but... You are his disciple. You're his follower. We're better than that. We're followers of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who what? Who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is our our statement right here. If we are steeped in sin, we cannot expect that God is going to do what we ask him to do. Because God listens to godly people who do what? Who do his will. And if we are not from God, We can do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth, and how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. That's not an uncommon reaction. It's not uncommon for us to react with self-righteousness, with judgment on others. It's very common for us to do that, to put ourselves here and our brothers and sisters here and assume that we have a better relationship to God than they do, to assume that they are lower than us or worse than us or that they sin more than us. That's our reaction. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So we'll recap quickly and then we'll get to go fellowship. Jesus started off by equating himself with God. So if you need to refresh your Trinity doctrine, this is a good place that uh, 5 through chapter 8 is a good place to bookmark. You can take a look at that. We took a quick look at sin. 
We looked at the different definitions of sin, why it is important to recognize sin and to move from sin to righteousness. We also looked at why this was not a case of sin. We need to change our thinking from looking for someone to blame to looking for how God will be glorified. We looked at physical disability and how it is not a sin or a curse, but it is an opportunity for the good works of God to be displayed. And that led to a brief look at how we, especially as Americans, view disability and eugenics and parenting in general in comparison to the biblical view of disability and parenting. And it is a hard reality. It is unearned obligation and unearned privilege. And everybody, when I say that, we all think about it in the negative, but it is both. It is both negative and positive. And I hope that reframes how you look at those topics. But our commitment is to having a workmanlike attitude. We should be like Jesus, relentless in our pursuit of doing the good works of God. Amen? Father, thank you for another beautiful day. Please bless this week that we have coming up. I, I lift up Miss Barb to you. She's in the hospital. And just heal her up. You could heal her on a Sunday. Send her home. We could have Thanksgiving. Have a great party. I think about the, the Mises and the Steinkirchners and sickness just seems to be going through. And uh, we just ask for their quick healing, for their quick recovery. And then, Father, we, we lift up our week to you that as we head out of here that we are refreshed and renewed and recommitted to not just paying lip service to our our belief in you, but to acting, for looking for opportunities for you to be glorified. And we ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go fellowship.